Hello everybody, uh, I'm Kia Ora. So in today's session, we will talk about a new book uh, that references Austro's research on pavement design, materials and technology. Um, paving Our Ways uh, examines the evolution of the world's pavements from the earliest human settlements to the present day. Basically, no previous book has covered such a broad canvas. It is written for engineering and transport professionals, students and anyone um, wishing to broaden their knowledge of the history of pavements. So the content of the book um, will be presented by its authors, uh, Dr. Maxwell Lay, uh, formerly Director Connect East, Dr. John Metcalf, uh, formerly Louisiana State University, uh, USA, uh, and Kieran Sharp, uh, Road Engineering Association of Asia and Australasia. All authors formerly worked for the Australian Road Research Board. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a Communications Officer at Austroads, and I will be moderating today's session. So a bit of housekeeping, uh, we will first hear our guest's presentation and then we will have some Q&A time at the end of the webinar. Today's slides can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, which you can find on the right-hand side of your screen. There's also a question section there, so please use it to send us your questions for the Q&A at any stage during the webinar. If your question relates to any particular slide, please include it um, the slide number in your message to help us answer your question as best as we can. You can also use that questions box uh, to let us know if you have any technical issues, but a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your connection. So closing your browser and rejoining the session uh, via your registration link usually helps. This session is being recorded uh, and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website. If you listen to podcasts, uh, you can find Austroads in your podcast app. And before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to Elders past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. And with that, I'm delighted to hand over to our first presenter, Max Lay. Uh, welcome, Max. Great. Hi, the three of us are honoured and pleased to be able to provide this webinar. We wrote Paving Our Ways as we thought the topic had not been well covered and as existing histories focus on one country or one paving type. Our book covers the international history of road pavements and provides an overview of the associated technologies and community needs. The all-pervading role of pavements might be reason enough to write a book about their world history over the four millennia or so of their existence, <clears throat> particularly as no previous history has been published. However, another potent reason is that the construction and subsequent use of pavements reflects the real world in which they existed, presenting its strengths, foibles and weaknesses in a new light. It also demonstrates the shaky and stumbling nature of human progress over the millennia. The word pavement comes from the Latin pavimentum, meaning a bit rammed or beaten floor. The pavement is that portion of the road formation that is traversed by vehicular traffic, whether, as shown in the slide, it is a pre-Christian era Celtic wagon hauled by a single horse or today's 80-ton road train. Pavements carry the horizontal and vertical forces transmitted by the wheels and hooves of their users, whilst operating in a range of natural environments providing surfaces that are dust-free and safe during braking and turning. 
it is a simple enough matter for man and beasts to create tracks across the countryside, pushing aside vegetation and trampling the ground. Putting a coherent and firm surface on those tracks is several orders of magnitude more difficult. This screen shows the pavement comprises a number of horizontal courses of different materials. More generally, pavements require a right-of-way to be established and protected, finance committed, labour obtained and organised, the surface levelled, suitable pavement material obtained, material formed into a usable and well-drained surface, the surface maintained throughout its intended life. Given these needs, it is not surprising the first pavements were created as ostentatious displays of wealth and power. The oldest existing pavement is in Egypt and dates from about 2500 BC. The quotations on the slide from Herodotus give us a word picture of the scene. The pyramids were in the Giza region near Cairo, but the nearest suitable stone was about 70 kilometres to the southwest. The road was built to allow stone to be moved from Lake Moeris Quarry to Giza. It was paved with 500 by 500 by 100 millimetre stone slabs. About 12 kilometres of the road still exists. The first urban pavement were monumental ceremonial plazas and processional ways. These required special resource allocations. Many of the best known were built in Mesopotamia by Mesopotamian monarchs in the delta land between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. The so-called Fertile Crescent, containing cities such as Assur, Baghdad, Babylon. Others have been found in places such as Pakistan. They were built between about 2000 BC and 500 BC. As shown in the slide, the builders used burnt bricks, limestone slabs and bitumen. The bricks were often bonded together using bitumen as a mortar. Bitumen occurred naturally in the petroleum-rich region. In the Biblical Old Testament, Genesis 14.10 reads, Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. Genesis 11.3 describes the construction of the Tower of Babel and notes that they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Bitumen was also widely used in the region for waterproofing buildings and boats. <clears throat> the word bitumen comes from an early attempt to translate the old word pitch into Latin as bitumen. It was then further translated into modern languages as bitumen. The ancient Greeks called the Dead Sea the Lake Asphaltites, which leads to our current word asphalt. More pragmatically, the Minoan civilization in Crete, from about 2600 BC to 1100 BC, developed relatively sophisticated pavements for link its towns and ports. They relied on the pavement as a structure and as a surface. For a mortar, they used cement rather than bitumen. Cement was made locally from natural pots of lands, although some was produced by burning limestone and dolomite. The slide shows a fine example of a mineral road built near Knossos in about 1600 BC. It appears to have been mainly built for foot traffic. Early in the 20th century, a famous archaeologist, Evans, noted that recently excavated mineral pavements were still in perfect condition and showed no signs of wheel traffic. The Minoan methods developed probably influenced later Etruscan and Roman road builders. However, the Romans' prime emphasis was on sickness and subsequent load spreading rather than structure, although the Romans did have to deal with much heavier wheeled traffic. The slide shows uh, 
In 2064 BC, the Rhodes built the Via Appia, which went from uh, San Sebastian Roman Gate to Capua. It was replaced by the much straighter Via Appia, or Appian Way in 312 BC. By 264 BC, the road had been progressively extended a further 400 kilometres across the Italian peninsula to the Adriatic port of Brindisi. The Appian Way began as an earthen track and the first Roman improvement was a ply of surface of small stones. It was paved with stone slabs between 295 BC and 123 BC. The way was partly reconstructed in 130 AD and routine use in the sixth century, remained in restricted use to the current day. Great pictures can be found in Wikipedia. The prime purpose of the Appian Way was to link Rome, then a seaport for the Western Mediterranean, with Brindisi, the seaport for the Adriatic. Generally, the major use of Roman roads was to facilitate the rapid and effective deployment of the army, followed by the unimpeded return of wagon loads of booty and slaves, and the effective supervision of remote administrators. The process was aided by the fact that, during times of relative peace, Road building also provided gainful employment for otherwise troublesome soldiers, the many prisoners of war, and surplus slaves. For all these reasons, Roman roads had clear objectives and served profitable purposes, factors which made devoting resources to their construction and maintenance a readily accepted burden. The slide shows a widely presented cross-section of a Roman road. There are various pavement layers and their functions are indicated. However, it is now believed that this cross-section was not as common as at first thought. The general policy adopted for all their roads included major longitudinal drains that managed water entry and removal and aided defending the road against attacks from the adjoining land, firm natural foundations, use of broken stones of diminishing size, compaction of the layers, use of stone masons to produce flat surfaces, regular maintenance of the surface and drains. After the collapse of the Roman Empire, road conditions were appalling. Incredibly, a thousand years would have passed before things got better, a whole millennia. For instance, in 1499, an unsuspecting traveller on horseback in England fell into a huge pit in the road created by a miller who had moved to clay to repair his mill. <coughs> Thus, a traveller and the horse drowned. The miller was charged with murder but was acquitted. The court found that he had no malicious intent as a highway was the best place to find the clay he needed. Society slowly developed. Trade between communities became more commonplace and demand for usable roads increased. The earliest signs were in France when some routes were improved. Timber and stone were still the main materials used for paving, but water and poor maintenance were the major culprits. The first book of roads was written in English by, by Thomas Proctor in 1610. He highlighted the problems created by water, which he said led to the rotting and spoiling of all highways. He emphasized the need for longitudinal side drains, a raised pavement put in place with much ramming and treading, a modest cross for the pavement surface. Proctor also suggested that carts be prohibited from using the pavement during the English winter. However, there is little evidence of such good advice being taken or the powers exercised. Many of the early road builders and maintainers did not recognize most of the water sources that you see on the slides. Next slide. 
The muddy pavements had some major effects on travellers. Whilst you were reading on the slide about the Hollyhead side, let me <coughs> tell you offline off about the Lord Chancellor Cooper, who in 1690 in England wrote to his wife, attributing the long legs of Sussex women to the constant pulling of their feet out of the mud as they travelled, which he concluded would tend to strengthen the muscles and lengthen the bones. In 1745, the British government was almost overthrown on account of the bad state of roads. In 1770, Arthur Young commented on ruts in Lancashire pavements, writing, I actually measured ruts four foot deep and floating with mud only from a wet summer. What therefore must they be like after winter? Change was occurring, but in France. Louis XI ordered construction of a new royal road between Paris and Orléans. It became known in the 16th century as the Queen of Roads and functioned as a toll road. The road development in France was given a boost by the need to develop strategic roads to serve the Franco-Spanish War and suppress local civil wars. A great new era of road builders was living in France. The 17th century saw a quantum leap in technology. In 1585, Guido Toglietta in Italy wrote a treatise on pavements in which he pointed out that lighter pavements than those used by the Romans would be feasible and effective. He emphasized using 50 millimeter thick pavement layer with lime strengthened base materials. Toglietta's principles were very sound and those mortared pavements would probably be able to resist the damaging effects of heavily laden wagons was placed on a very strong and firm subgrade. You see on the slide the uh, drawing from a detailed technical account of Roman roads, which was produced by Nicholas Berger in 1622, based on a piece of row within his family property. The book led to lavish, technically unsuccessful revival of Roman roadmaking practice in France and a number of German states. Shown in the slide, his surface layer of Roman practice and the using broken stones rather than the river, river, rounded river gravel then commonly used. Keep this picture in mind when we return to later discuss Tosaculae and Gautier. Next slide. A significant step occurred in 1672 when a powerful national figure in France, Jean Colbert, created the Corps of Military Engineers with a major role in road building and maintenance. In 1693, Henry Gautier, had originally trained as a doctor of medicine, was appointed the National French Inspector of General of Bridges and Roads. The same year, he published a book on the construction of pavements, which had a very elaborate pavement structure, as you see on the screen. Um, Reordered some of the major stones to a vertical position and wedging the structure between curb-like longitudinal retaining walls. As shown inside, the vertical alignment of stones avoided the problems caused using flat horizontal stones which wobbled and pumped water under concentrated wheel loads. An important advance on Gautier's method was introduced then by Pierre-Marie Tezaguet, the great road builder in France in the latter half of the 18th century. Tezaguet believed that the structure used by the Romans was unnecessarily massive and advocated the alternative approach to structure shown in the slide. He emphasized the Roman longitudinal drains, of course, and Gautier's curbstones and required the 
subgraded to compacted then sloped to further aid the removal of water from the pavement. A key response to the demands for better pavements came from Thomas Telford, a Scottish stonemason who had rapidly become a leader in the design and construction of bridges, buildings, roads and canals. In 1803, Telford received a major and well-funded government commission to provide roads as a consequence of troubles caused by the rebellious Jacobites in the Scottish Highlands. Telford's bottom layer shown in the slide reflects his background as a stonemason and it was effectively a horizontal wall. His roads lasted well but were relatively expensive. He also introduced uh, napping of rocks of the broken stone between the, the larger bottom stones and this stopped the, the bottom stones moving sideways. As you can see in the section, it was very much like a brick wall. Under traffic, the services required daily maintenance and dedicated local labour, as the rocks weren't coherent. The slide is from a contemporary drawing from the time, and you can see the napping arrangement of the pointed slab uh, base stones even clearer. Telford built over 1,500 kilometres of Highland roads during the next 25 years. Given his background as a stonemason and bridge builder, his awareness of the remnants of Roman roads in Britain, it is not surprising that his roads drew significantly from stonemasonry and Roman practice. They were a great improvement on pre-existing English and Scottish roads, but also much more expensive than the earlier roads, and this drew some major criticism. The need for a chief of its still effective method of pavement construction might, as traffic increased as a consequence of the Industrial Revolution, and as toll roads or turnpikes became more widespread. Incidentally, Thomas Telford became the first president of the Institution of Civil Engineers in 1820. I now hand over to Kieran Sharp. Okay, let's introduce you to John McAdam, who most of you, of course, have heard of, dispel a myth or two. He was a businessman and property manager who subsequently also became a turnpike or tollway manager. He was also born in Scotland and within a year of Telford. After observing the performance of many ex existing pavements, McAdam came to the conclusion that a well-compacted layer of broken stones placed directly on a firm subgrade could be affected, effective without the need for a stratum layer of larger stones used by the Romans, the French, and then by Telford. To assist the, the removal of water from the pavement, McAdam followed Tessigo rather than Telford and sloped his subgrades across the railway, the roadway towards the roadside drains, as, as you can see on the slide. He made some quite specific comments on the stone breaking process. The only proper method of breaking stones, both for effect and economy, is by women boys or old men past hard labour like me sitting with small hammers of about 500 gram weight with a short handle. McAdam's alternative to the walnut and hen's egg definitions of stone size employed by Telford was that the broken stone used in the upper 50 
millimetre layer of the pavement had to be capable of fitting into the local stonebreaker's mouth. McAdam once accused a workman of placing stones that were too large. The workman's denial was based on displaying, quote, a mouth of extraordinary capacity and totally devoid of teeth. <laughs> In today's terminology, the use of stones of a single size would be called open grading. I haven't tried the mouth test. Okay, stone breaking using such tools came to be widely used to provide work for the unemployed and for convicts. For example, in the late 1860s, over 400 men were being given unemployment relief, breaking stones with hand tools while seated under the railway arches at Bethnal Green in London. Steam powered stone breaking machines were first produced by Eli Blake in Connecticut in the 1850s. He had been appalled by the two days labour it took a man to crush a cubic metre of stone by hand. So he developed steam-driven mechanical stone crushers called jaw crushers. His crushers were used to produce pavements for Central Park in New York. Initially, stones broken by machines were used with some reluctance, as it was widely believed that one, hand-broken stones produced better mechanical interlock, and also hand-breaking had become a major source of local employment. Ramming or tamping to refusal was a well-practiced technique in pavement construction. Indeed, Chinese road builders were using metal rammers in about 200 BC. A frieze in the Museum of Roman Civilization in Rome shows workers in the first century AD using timber stumps about 1.5 metres long. By the 19th century, European rammers weighed about 20 kilogram and had iron bases. This 1851 lithograph, which is also the cover of the book, which is shown on the first slide, shows workers compacting in time to a rhythm set by the foreman come conductor on the right, the bloke in the hat, waving the stick. Okay. Since 1820, McAdam's name has been remembered by the term McAdam, used to describe courses of compacted broken stones working together due to natural interlock between the stones. The associated method was called macadamizing. Funny, funnily enough. However, in some places, the broken stone is referred to as road metal, and the resulting pavement is described as a metalled road. The use of the word metal in this context came from the Latin word metallum, meaning a mine or quarry. Thus, metal originally referred to anything useful that had been extracted from the ground, as it is today. The broken stone principle is still used in modern highway construction, but nowadays, rather than use single size stones, a mixture of sizes is used, giving a maximum density. Next one. Uh, okay. As Max mentioned earlier, 
cement and cement mortars had been used by the earliest Mesopotamian builders and extensively by the Romans. The techniques for making cement were then largely lost until 1796 when James Parker, almost said Packer, Parker, ground and burnt lime clay noodles he had found on the Isle of Sheppey in Kent and used the material to produce a practical cement. In 1824, Joseph Aspinon, a bricklayer from Wakefield in New Yorkshire, invented modern cement by modifying the clay content and the burning temperature. He called the product Portland cement, as it resembled the colour of the limestone quarry on the Isle of Portland in Dorset. This advance led to the wider use of concrete pavements, cement mixed with graded stone aggregate and of course of stabilisation when cement is mixed with usually the in situ soil, certainly in those times. Okay. okay. The advent of the motor car and a, a new quantum step in pavement pavements. As fast moving motorised vehicles appeared on roads in the 20th century, a new set of problems arose as the speeding vehicles soon removed most of the fine surface material and left the pavement both porous and rough. The road dust caused a great public nuisance. Motorists in the early open cars wore protective clothing to counter the adverse effects of dust. A revised method was subsequently used throughout France. A Swiss physician Ernest Gugli-Elminetti came to be known as the Tar Doctor or Le Doctor Gordian. He'd actually first observed the practice in Indonesia when the, when the process was used to clean floors in hospitals. The process was subsequently enhanced by further improvements in spraying, particularly by replacing the tar with bitumen and making it more fluid at am ambient temperatures. The second pavement impact came during the First World War, when motorised trucks were produced in large numbers. These damaged and destroyed roads due to the pressure beneath their solid rubber tyres and the increased frequency of truck traffic. This required major investments in stronger and stiffer pavements. The one saving grace was that the interdict was that the introduction of pneumatic tyres in the 1920s, another major breakthrough, reduced contact pressures and made overloading more difficult. Development of asphalt. By the 1920s, the use of cement and bitumen was increasing, as I just said, and as Max said earlier, both had been used as pavement surfacings and sealants said Mesopotamian times. Despite that, there is no record of asphalt paving being used anywhere in the world before the 18th century. Modern asphalt was primarily developed in France early in the 19th century using deposits of natural asphalt, which was limestone with bitumen impregnation, mined in southeastern France and Switzerland. Various thick thicknesses of these asphalts were placed on concrete bases using predominantly manual methods with varying degrees of success. For example, in 1838, a trial of asphalt was conducted in Oxford Street near Soho Square 
using square blocks, 300 by 300 by 75 millimetres, made from Val de Travers asphalt. None of these trials were successful because the blocks proved brittle in winter and too soft in summer to withstand the loads applied by horses hooves and hard ringed wheels. The comment attributed to Patiot, then Director General of Roads in France was, quote, the joints opened and the surface of the pavement became rutty and uneven after only six months use, end quote. The general lack of interparticle contact in bitumen rich mixes would also have contributed to their poor performance. Thus, many asphalt-based pavements failed to live up to expectations and the material gained a poor reputation in Europe. An American study in 1843 observed European practice and noted that the various asphalts that were being marketed were, quote, very much the objects of speculation, some of them fraud. The first recorded use of bituminous paving was in 1747, when a mixture of ship's bitumen, gravel and rubble was used to produce an actual car carriageway in the Dublin home of the Earl of Leinster. Adding stones to the asphalting mastics produced manufactured asphalt. Hand mixing of the mastics and stones provided a variable and relatively expensive asphaltic pavement. So the, the mechanical equipment, e.g. stone crushers, sand and stone dryers, rotor receiving screens, bucket elevators, scales, mixers and screeds that had been used for making and placing pavement late in the 19th century were all rapidly adapted by the asphalt industry to handle the strong and stiff asphalts required for 20th century pavements. The product produced by the new equipment came to be called Hot Mix Asphalt, HMA. The first public use of HMA was in, was in Michigan in 1902 in Muskegon City. And it was reported it was performing well, still performing well after six weeks of service, six years of service. <laughs> By the 1920s, asphalt was the dominant American paving material. Today, a wide range of bitumens are available, including modified binders and proprietary products, as you all know. Paving machines use automatic control of all relevant parameters, particularly pavement thickness, during the paving process. Paving equipment has also embraced intelligent compaction using vibratory rollers equipped with integrated measurement systems, an onboard computer-based reporting system, GPS-based mapping and feedback control. It also provides a continuous record of the properties of the asphalt being placed. Let's have a look at, quick look at concrete. From 1875, the, the use of improved construction methods saw an expanding use of concrete paving, pavement slabs. Mixing cement, sand and stones to make concrete and then placing it in large enough quantities for road making was, however, not a simple task. The concrete was mixed by workmen on roadside platforms and carted to the pavement in wheelbarrows. This is the process used on this slide. You see the process used in Liverpool at the beginning of the 20th century. The concrete 
was compacted in into place with hand rammers, a bit like doing your driveway, isn't it? Uh, the process was slow and difficult to organise and control. Uh, concrete pavement construction boomed during the 1930s when Germany began building its autobahn system in 1933 after Hitler came to power. By the end of World War II, some 4,000 kilometres of concrete pavement had been built. A steel, a steel for reinforcement as steel for reinforcement was often unavailable, many of the pavements used plain concrete. The zenith of concrete pavement usage was reached in 1938 to 1940 when America's first paved tollway, the 200 kilometre long Pennsylvania Turnpike, was constructed using concrete for all its pavements. However, when the next when the second tollway, the 80 kilometre long main turnpike, was built in 1947, only asphalt paving was used. The same outcome in favour of asphalt occurred when the New Jersey Turnpike was built in the 1950s. From that time forward, asphalt has dominated many paving markets. However, advances in concrete pavement technology were in, were in the pipeline. Two major advances in concrete pavement technology to occur in recent times were firstly the introduction of vibrators to aid the placement and compaction of concrete, and this had a major positive effect on concrete quality. The second, adva the second advance was the introduction of slip form paving. In this process, a single self-powered machine converts wet concrete into a finished pavement. Travelling at walk walking speed on caterpillar tracks, it is able to place concrete which is sufficiently stiff to maintain the pavement profile without the need for side formwork. Tension string lines or laser guidance is used to ensure the correct longitudinal placement of the concrete and a mechanical vibrating screed provides the required surface finish. The steel reinforcement is also placed by the machine. And another type of bituminous pavement is the sprayed seal or chip seal, developed initially by FN in New Zealand in 1935. It now accounts for about 70% of the surface road network in Australasia. The, this type of pavement has been used with great success, particularly for lightly traffic pavements in dry climates. As a result, they've been mainly used in countries such as Australia, New Zealand and South Africa. Pointedly, they developed their road systems subsequent to the widespread use or introduction of pneumatic tyres. It has been most successful when the pavement is constructed while the subgrade is dry. The bituminous seal helps to keep water out of the pavement. It is particularly important where the subgrade is composed of moisture sensitive materials such as clay and silt. Hansen was the first to present a measurement-based method for the design and construction of spray seal, chip seal pavements, and his rational approach remained unchallenged for the next 50 years. Time for me to say goodbye, and I'll now pass you over to John Metcalf for the next exciting instalment. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. 
my task is to uh, explain and introduce the development of pavement performance measures. Have you got? Yes, okay, we've got you. Most pavements at this stage of the game had been built to 19th century expectations. And although administrators were aware that a, a single overloaded wheel could totally destroy a road, their only tools for detecting overloads were observation of the vehicle and its cargo. So it soon became apparent as pneumatic tired motor vehicles of greater weight, traveling at greater speed and in higher numbers were used, it was apparent there was a need for higher quality construction materials and a better understanding of the strength and stiffness of the subgrade and the selection of pavement materials and thicknesses. The loading issue became more about the number and arrangement of the wheels that use the pavement rather than the single load that each could transmit, which directs attention away from overload and towards fatigue failure of the pavement. Some of this experience resulted from the use of solid tire trucks during World War I. Their impact on the existing pavements, for example, caused a virtual collapse of the highway system in the eastern United States. In fact, in 1919, to demonstrate the use of trucks, a fleet of 79 trucks and 300 soldiers, including a Lieutenant Colonel Eisenhower, drove from Washington to San Francisco. The trip took 56 days and highlighted the need for good pavements as much as the value of trucks, which is not surprising to know that Eisenhower then initiated the interstate highway system as president in 1956. Management of payments then over a period of time as the condition changes requires an optimum maintenance intervention linked to pavement condition. This began with measurement of deflection as the first condition measure, followed by roughness, rutting and skid resistance. The need for a better riding quality was spearheaded by cyclists. The League of American Wheelmen printed a petition demanding that Congress create a federal department to promote knowledge of the art of constructing and maintaining roads. They collected copies, pasted into an enormous scroll and delivered to the US Capitol in 1893 on a pair of hand cranked oak spools that stood seven feet high. This so-called monster petition now housed in the National Archives bore 150,000 signatures. And that same year, Congress authorized the creation of a, the Office of Road Inquiry, a two-man fact-finding operation that was a precursor to the US Federal Highway Administration. The role of deflection as a management tool was first recognized by Francis Veeam, a high California highways engineer. However, his method for measuring deflections required instruments placed in the pavement. The first practical device was the Benkelman beam developed in 1962, which records pavement deflection under static load or actually a slowly moving load as the truck is driven away from its starting point. A similar and widely used device is the falling weight deflectometer developed in the 1960s, which drops a weight onto the road surface and uses accelerometers on the pavement surface to measure the deformational response of the pavement and subgrade. 
In recent times, devices have been developed to measure pavement deflections due to a truck traveling at highway speeds. The importance of roughness or ride comfort became important to passenger vehicles, but later also to commercial vehicles. Roughness was first investigated as profile with a series of measuring devices called profilometers developed in America in the early 1920s, as shown in the slide. One early form of roughness vehicle was developed in 1931 in Victoria. It measured the difference in space between the front axle and the body of the vehicle. You can see a little square box there which on the bonnet, which contained the instrumentation. The vehicle was operated for about a decade until it began to produce inconsistent results. But to avoid the results being dependent on the characteristics of the vehicle, in about 1930, the American Bureau of Public Roads standardized a device called the Dana Automatic Rafometer, which was mounted in a standardized trailer towed behind a car. In 1946, the British introduced a similar device called a bump integrator, which was widely used in the 70s. There were two problems with these meters. They could not operate at much over 30 kilometers an hour, and the data was not specific to the common wheel path. By the mid 80s, the availability of compact accelerometers and laser tech based distance measurement allowed equipment to be developed, which could be mounted in an ordinary commercial vehicle traveling at highway speeds. There was no longer any need for physical contact between the device and the pavement surface, and the output provided continuous profile data of sufficient accuracy, not only to provide road roughness, but also measures of rutting and surface texture. The traffic speed deflectometer uses Doppler lasers to monitor the response of a pavement at highway speeds. It collects continuous pavement deflection profiles from which bearing capacity indices can be derived and pavement fatigue estimated. The frictional performance of a road pavement surface is provided by both the smoothness of the individual stones and the texture of the surface. The skidding issue was recognized in 1906 in the UK and full-scale studies began in 1927, but it took until 1952 before the group modified an ISOD pendulum to swing a standard piece of rubber across the pavement in question and measure the energy lost in the process. The results were empirically calibrated against skid resistance. More recently, the sideways force routine investigation machine, oh, we've jumped ahead one slide, sorry. The sideways force routine investigation machine based on a truck with a freely rotating wheel moving at an angle to the vehicle direction is used. Water carried in the truck is sprayed on the surface before contact by the locked testing wheel. Many factors affect skid resistance, and so scrim must be used in a very standardized way if comparative data is required. But with the advent of laser-based technology for measuring surface texture, relationships can be established between texture and skid resistance. And now the next slide. One obvious step away from laboratory tests of materials and preconceptions for design 
was to observe how real pavements behaved under real or almost real traffic. Some tests were conducted on pavements which were lengths of functioning roads. The UK had 29 such test pavements between 1911 and 1966. And some on pavements built and trafficked independently of the real road system. The Asho road tests being the prime example of this approach. Long-term pavement performance was a key element of the US strategic highway research program and sites in the USA are still being monitored. As you can see from the slide, much of this work was also paralleled in Australia. The next stage was to move to a quasi-laboratory approach, but approximating full scale. In 1909, the Detroit Public Works Department, concerned about pavement wear due to horse and buggy traffic, built the paving determinator. Rotating a steel wheel and a wheel shod with horseshoes on a nine meter diameter track and running on brick, stone and concrete surfaces. In the UK, the National Physical Laboratory built the first circular track in 1911, a precursor to two later tracks at the then Road Research Laboratory. Australia made a first attempt with a linear configuration in the early 1960s, followed by the ALF in the 1980s. In the USA, a test road was built by the then Bureau of Public Roads in 1925, contemporary with the Bates Road Test and preceding the Asho Road Test. In the mid-1980s, the growth of truck traffic on Australia's very large but relatively low-cost pavement network was accelerating and the need for some national effort to improve understanding of their performance became urgent. Ostrods and ARRB therefore cooperated to construct and operate the ALF loading facility shown in this slide. It has been operating successfully since 1984. And incidentally, four more ALFs were built, one for China and three for the United States. Thank you. Okay, we're ready to go on the next slide then. Methods of stress analysis that developed late in the 19th century for structures such as bridges built with more controlled dimensions and using elastic materials such as steel. Such methods were first applied to concrete pavements and assumed elastic subgrades. Cracking was an early problem and the first designs of the 20th century were based on upward curling of the slab corners. Traditional stress analysis of asphalt pavements demanded far more data and material properties than were then available, for asphalt was its inherently random nature and sensitivity to temperature and time. Only fatigue cracking was only developed later in the 20th century. The slide shows how the amount of traffic is now an inherent part of the current design process. As mentioned by Dr. Metcalf, um, pavement developers hastened by the availability of steam-powered machinery capable of making and placing asphalt and concrete in large amounts. As indicated in the slide, many soundly based empirical methods were subsequently developed and led to uh, 
a variety of design procedures based on secondary laboratory tests and empirically based design methods. The next slide then. Many design processes developed in the 20th century were based on field observations of in-service roads, as Dr. Metcalf has mentioned. Complex pavement design methods were then proposed in the USA later in the 20th century. There are a mixture of elastic stress analysis, elaborate material tests, and various empirical modifications. A rational approach to fatigue cracking and the progressive development of rats has lately allowed major advances to occur. For example, the various power laws relating, uh, linearly relating cracking to the logarithms of time. Today, structural pavement design is soundly based on both theory and testing. The Ostrose design method, summarized in this slide, are excellent examples of the approach developed over recent decades. The next slide. As we saw in earlier slides, a primary need for any design procedure is a method of assessing the support for the underlying soil. The most widely used method is the Californian Bearing Ratio Test, or CBR. Initially, it was based on work in the 1920s by the American Bureau of Public Roads. The California Highways Department then developed a laboratory procedure shown in the slide, which a sample of the proposed subgrade is subjected to a penetration test. The force required to produce a five millimeter deformation is compared to force required to produce the same deformation in a broken stone macadam pavement, which is the broken stone macadam pavement was rated as 100. Measured CBRs were then related to field experience of various thicknesses of pavement placed over that subgrade to produce a design chart. I went through, I go through this long background to illustrate how empirical the method was, how basic experience rather than theory it is, but it was used with great success during aircraft construction during the Second World War and continues today in widespread use. In fact, it's undoubtedly the longest lasting and most successful pavement design test. Next slide. As, as you heard in Dr. Metcalf's presentation, damage by, and Kieran's as well, damage by overloading is now much better controlled. Standardized truck and tire design and devices for detecting overloaded trucks, such as the wave motion devices embedded in pavements and culverts, shown on the slide, not only reduced overloading, but also provided valuable input for the design of future pavements. Another control on overloaded vehicles came from the rise of fleet logistics and freight forwarding, which meant that many trucks were loaded and are still loaded by quality managed parties other than the truck operator. As Dr. Metcalf and Kieran have both mentioned, perhaps the ultimate control device in the last 100 years has been the pneumatic tyre, introduced in the 1920s to replace solid rubber tyres, and followed in the 1980s by regulated spacings of axles and wheels. This means that trucks with routine and very visible tyre arrangements cannot be grossly overloaded from a pavement perspective. Next slide. It is easy to be critical of paved roads over the six millennia, important, but important to realise that they were built and maintained with great human effort, facing many challenges and far less than ideal circumstances. 
The current technology for building and maintaining road pavements is now very effective, though many jurisdictions still make inadequate technical financial provisions for pavement maintenance. The choice of pavement type is usually between asphalt and concrete and is made on economic and political grounds as both can perform adequately. On the first foot footpath, paveways have increasingly invaded and pervaded all aspects of the manner in which our land-based world operates. Although pavements are now a major part of the fabric of our daily existence, the extraordinary contribution has been but rarely noted, let alone lauded. Hopefully our book will help to change the way in which our pavements are viewed, managed and used. The last slide. This slide shows Highway Route 339, which runs around the beautiful Tizagura Peninsula, the northern end of the island of Honshu, in the Aomori Prefecture in Japan. Through an administrative oversight, the steps shown in the slide, which serve local schools, were made a legal part of the Japanese national highway system. This circumstance reminds us that we can only properly understand something, we know its history, the background of its prior use and application. I recall, to end this presentation, T.S. Eliot's observation in his poem, Four Quartets, when he said, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. We three authors trust that our backwards-oriented book will help you to all better under understand and appreciate where you now stand and to then to bravely take your next pavement related forward steps. Thank you and particularly thank you to Ospreys for organising this session. Thank you very much. Thanks so much Max and uh, I invite John and Kieran um, to join us for the Q&A. Great. Kieran, we can we can try your camera and see if it's going to work or not. If it's not going to, then we can um, turn it off. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much for such a fantastic presentation. Um, and our webinar attendees are also sending through their thanks for such an impressive um, history lesson. And we have people uh, with us from all over the world and some people are currently watching the webinar from Brazil where it's midnight. So thanks so much everybody for being with us. Um, we do have a few questions and I will start with uh, these ones. So um, is there anywhere in the book uh, where you talk about baked pavements where the natural surface is cooked by hot rollers that effectively um, give the surface the texture of a brick. It was used in areas with high clay content soils. Um, the Georgian Woolshed Museum had one of the machines. John Metcalf will answer that. It, yes, it was, <coughs> it was tried in Western Queensland in the mid 30s uh, using a, a timber burning mobile rig. There's a picture of it in the book. Uh, the problem was that uh, at that time we were trying to use very high temperatures to bake the surface of the road into brick. And in fact, that doesn't need to be done. If you can lift the temperature of most clay materials over some 300 degrees centigrade, 
uh, then you will uh, stop their swelling, stop their water absorption, and make them a better road building material. Thank you, John. Um, and another question here. So where did waterbound macadam enter the scene? Kieran, do you want to answer that? Or, or will I do it? Well, we did talk. You can do it, Max, that's fine. <laughs> Thanks, Kieran. Well, uh, waterbound came much later because you have to be with waterbound macadam. You had to be very careful about the sensitivities of the material and, and the drainage of excess water around. So waterbound macadam requires more sophisticated equipment than, than the early developers had. In fact, the early developers would have thought it was the wrong way to go. John, do you want to take that further? No, I don't think there's much you can add, except that uh, I, I suppose around about the same sort of time, we started to move from the open graded macadams into uh, densely graded mixes, which would then use a bit less mortar and produce a stronger mix anyway, a bit less water, I should have said, uh, and produce a stronger mix. Thanks, John. Uh, and here's another question. So was there some performance benefit uh, to temping the stones in unison? So this refers to the discussion, um, I guess, about the fodder that is on the um, cover of the book. Well, I'll answer firstly. Um, it kept all the workers uh, knowing what they were doing, and you could soon see if someone wasn't doing it properly because everyone had to keep time to the music. I suppose it was better than not having music, but it was mainly a, a management tool for making sure everyone was doing what they should be doing. Kieran? Pretty much, and times have, times have not changed. <laughs> <laughs> it's called marching. <laughs> Think, yeah. think much. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, thank you, Kieran. Um, so another question. So while the definition of a pavement is well known, there appears to be no um, definition for the role of the pavement engineer. So does the book define the pavement engineer? <laughs> I don't think it does define the word for pavement engineer. And, and I think, you know, so that's the best engineer you can find, of course, is the pavement engineer, isn't it? But the, the, uh, it's curious that one, one person reviewed the book has pointed out that in some countries, the word pavement only means the footpath. Mm -hmm. And so we, we uh, the, fortunately, the Oxford English Dictionary has mm -hmm. our definition, but there are parts of the world where if we talked about pavement, history of pavements, they would think we were talking about the history of footpaths. Thank you, Max. I, I, think, um, uh, I think with pavement, there's a lot of processes involved in, from the structural design right through to the construction and maintenance. So there's probably not one definitive pavement engineer. <laughs> it's a process. Thank you. Um, so another question just came in. Do you have any direct experience or knowledge about Asheville mixes produced in Australia by using coal tar? Uh, for example, in Macadam Road basis? Well, it was very popular in because Australia doesn't have any natural, at the time, any, or any natural bitumens coming, but in the, in the 1930s, for example, but there was lots of tar being produced from the gas works burning coal. And so there were, were trials using gas works tar. The unfortunate part of, of Gasworks tar is that it's carcinogenic, 
So those trials slowly filtered out and early early documents about how you use tar in, in making asphalt pointed out to the managers that if any of your workmen occurred with blisters on their arms, you should send them home and hire someone else. That was a treatment for the carcinogenic effects. So tar, use of tar died out for those sort of reasons. Uh, thank you, Max. Uh, well, we ran out of time, but I have two questions, so we will try to answer. Oh, three. All right. So uh, the first one in this three, what can we expect from the falling wave deflectometer test during pre and post construction works? After we carried out um, FWD post construction test, can we get the results? For example, modulus stiffness or pavement materials as per um, design. Is there any correlation between pre and post um, FWD test results? John Metcalf's going to answer that. I'm not quite clear what uh, what we're getting at because uh, uh, you can't you can't get um, any elastic parameters for the pavement really in the laboratory. You, you need to have the thing built in the field, and the only way to measure it in the field then is to go to FWD or or uh, Benjamin Beam or something uh, and measure it live. So I'm, I'm not quite clear what the question is after. You can. Um, that calculates moduli based on the measured deflections using all sorts of programs from elastic layer programs and even now finite element programs. So, and then you can monitor the change in that calculated modulus over time. I remember in one trial we did the modulus of the back calculated modulus of the asphalt had been decreased by something like. 50% before any surface cracking was observed. So it was a way of um, using it as a maintenance management tool. With um, cemented pavements, I think it had decreased by something like 80% before cracking was observed. So uh, if that's what you're referring to, it's certainly quite common use of the reflection data to, um, you know, to manage the life of, of your pavement. If you got a drop in asphalt modulus, but it hasn't cracked yet, it might be a good time to go in and put a thin overlay on, so you can ward off the cracking. Thanks, Kieran. And okay, our last question. Oh, did John? No, that's fine. You wanted to say something? No? All good? Um, so historical designs seem to primarily specify stone size. When did we start uh, to acknowledge other beneficial qualities such as crushed faces? No, no, we, well, I mean, once you, as soon as you moved away from just the use of natural stones and gravels, which would have been probably after the Romans, I suppose, because I don't think they did a lot of breaking up of the small material. Um, as soon as you move to uh, using crushed stone, like everybody from Chesagay onwards, you were starting to look at the number of crushed faces. Uh, there was a John. There, there was a, a background in the early days of crushing stone when quarry makers would advocate that their quarry stone was better than anyone else, and they began to hire geologists who would look at the the microstructure of the faces. And so we, you know, we can tell this stone from another, but then the subsequent test showed that there was no relationship between 
what they saw in the microscope and the subsequent performance. Yeah, well, so the, yeah certainly true. Uh, yeah. All right. Okay, thanks so much. I guess we'll finish our Q&A here. Uh, and um, that's the end of our, our webinar. Before we wrap up, I just have a few um, words um, about our future webinars on pavements. Um, so join us in June for a series of webinars uh, to learn about a new framework and tools for evaluating road preservation and renewal treatments for sprayed seal flexible pavements. On the 22nd of June, we will talk about asset data collection for road pavement performance. Um, and the session on the 24th will focus on opportunities to improve the pavement rehabilitation and strengthening treatment design procedures. So we have more webinars. Um, to learn uh, more about all of the sessions, please visit um, Ostroad's website. Uh, and as usual, after we close out today's session, a questionnaire will pop up on your screen. Uh, please take a couple of minutes to send us your feedback. It really helps us to know what you liked or didn't like about the session and what suggestions you have for future webinars. And once again, today's session is being recorded and we will send you a link to the recording when it's published on our website. So thanks again, everyone. Stay well and safe and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. We will see you next time. Thank you.